for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Tonight, is it dangerous to bring cake and other sweet stuff to work? The head of the UK's Food Standards Agency thinks so. She likened it to the impact on colleagues of secondhand smoke. It sounds extreme, but perhaps the idea should be given its just desserts. Why do we have anxiety dreams? You know those ones where you find yourself lost or late or falling or unable to walk, unable to speak? Well, it's our brain processing the day, good and bad, and the cure is making sure you get a good night's sleep. On the one-year anniversary of the so-called Freedom Convoy rolling into Ottawa, we asked what police forces have learned about dealing with similar protests and what might happen if one started to develop again. But first, party leaders were firing up their MPs ahead of Parliament in Ottawa resuming on Monday. The Prime Minister and Opposition Leader Pierre Polyev are offering starkly different views of the current state of the country and that, no doubt, is what we will be hearing when Parliament resumes. First up, well, politics can sometimes feel pretty separated from reality as well. Uh, it's back to business on Monday for MPs for the winter session in Ottawa. The Prime Minister and the Leader of the Official Opposition both met with their caucuses today to lay down their priorities and fire up the troops, so to speak. And you can't help but being struck by the very different tones Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev are taking heading into this session. The Conservative leader, you'll have, you won't be surprised to know, is doubling down on his belief, or at least his claim, that, quote, everything feels broken. You know, everything's broken, only I can fix it. And and criticizing the Prime Minister for suggesting otherwise. Um, Polyev began his speech outlining the ways Canadians are hurting. Seriously, look around you. Crime is raging out of control in our streets. Our people are desperate that they'll have to lose their homes because of rising inflation and interest rates the government promised would never happen. People are losing loved ones at record rates to violent crime and drug overdoses. And families who've been locked down for two years because of COVID are now locked down at airports when they try to get away for a small vacation. So there you go. I think that'll be the tone you'll hear from uh, Polyev and the Conservatives in Parliament beginning in question period beginning on Monday. Uh, meantime, the Prime Minister is calling on his caucus to, quote, meet the moment as Canadians deal with the high cost of living, a struggling healthcare system and the effects of climate change, he said. He also took a few shots at his Conservative rival. Let's continue to fight for families. Let's continue to fight for patients and healthcare workers. Let's continue to fight for facts and science and truth. And while we were doing all this work last year, Mr. Polyev was out talking about how we should all invest in Bitcoin to opt out of inflation after he watched videos on YouTube about it. And there is the Prime Minister. So what, you, what it boils down to, I guess, is a redux of his of Trudeau's so-called sunny ways. And Polyev thinking, you know, people, Canadians have probably had enough of the sunny ways and they want something a little bit different. So he's eager to point out things just aren't as sunny as uh, the Prime Minister claims they are. And this all comes, of course, as we roll into the first anniversary of the so-called Freedom Convoy rolling into Ottawa. Well, joining me now with more on all of this is Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken. David, thanks for your time. Welcome back. Yeah, great to be here, Ben. Uh, we got a real preview today of what the next uh, parliamentary session is going to look like. Uh, two very uh, opposite views of where Canada is headed right now from the Prime Minister and the leader of the official opposition. Yes, two opposite views. And, you know, if you're looking at the polls, um, two views that have some purchase with 
many Canadians. Uh, you know, to be honest, we start this session, you know, in terms of polls, pretty much where we ended the last federal election, i.e., the Conservatives are leading in the polls. Pierre Polyev's Conservatives, depending on whose polls you're talking to, two, three, four points above the Liberals. But of course, the way the Liberal vote is spread around the country, the Liberals end up with more seats. And so how does one side or the other get some separation? Well, you have been hearing Pierre Polyev probably for some months. He's he, he drawing good crowds. And his message is everything's broken, that everything's broken in Canada, that uh, you know, from cost of living to the ability of parents to be able to buy regular over-the-counter pain relief for their for their kids. Of course, he blames the Trudeau government. Trudeau today uh, says, hey, this guy, Poiliev, he offers no solutions. All he's going to do is whip up anger and division. And that's uh, not the way to deliver on things to Canadians. Both men were speaking to the winter retreat, if you will, of their national caucus the Conservatives met today uh, behind closed doors, but Polyev invited the media in for his little speech to caucus. And same thing on the Liberal side is the Liberals have been meeting for two days now, uh, all Liberal MPs here on Parliament Hill. And uh, Trudeau invited us in to uh, hear his sort of rah-rah speech to his troops. So two partisan sort of takes. Neither man took any questions from reporters. That's not really this kind of event. It's a sort of set speech and then they'll get at it at question period on Monday. We don't know if both will be in question period on Monday. I suspect they might be. But, you know, here we go for the, the winter fun. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like just listening to to both of them, I mean, I think clearly Polyev has found purchase with this idea of broke. And I wonder sometimes if it's too negative. I mean, I think everyone understands that that Canadians, a lot of Canadians are, are having a rough time and, and for the reasons he mentions. And it's, you know, and it's an old, old tactic to blame the government for absolutely everything. But what will he have to do, do you think, in this session? Because this really feels like his first real one. For Pierre Polyev, it feels like this is the one. Like, you know, last, his first, his last, the fall session was sort of, he had just come in. He was kind of finding his feet. There was a lot going on. Uh, what do you think he has to do in this session to kind of stand out? And, and you know what? You make a good point. I want to just remind people that he came into the fall and though he was president question period, he really didn't do, well, he hasn't done hardly any national media. He he will do, if he travels to a city or something, he might do, a, you know, a morning show or something like that. But the fall for his office was really organizing the leader of the official opposition's office and doing some very important work at Conservative Party headquarters to reorganize their fundraising arm, reorganize or start to reorganize the very sophisticated software they need for voter identification, get out the vote systems, software where they've fallen way behind on the liberals. The liberals have the, the leading, best in class software for that. And, th and that, that plumbing, believe it or not, is supremely important mm -hmm. when we when and if we get to an election. So that was his fall. So yes, now what is he going to do now? Uh, you're certainly going to see him hammer the government over. This is broken and inflation is all your fault. What are we going to expect, I think, in the next couple of weeks? Well, one thing that's on everybody's radar is healthcare. And the Trudeau government has been doing what the Harper government started. Then, of course, Pierre Polyev was part of the Harper government. And that is the Fed's increased health care transfers to the provinces by a minimum of 3% a year or the rate of inflation, whichever is, will never be less than 3%. So th that's the, the floor. And if inflation is running 4 or 5%, they increase by 4 or 5%. That's not good enough for the provinces right now. And there's going to be a big federal provincial uh, meeting premiers and prime ministers here in Ottawa in early February. So what is the proposal of the conservative leader, the opposition leader? 
what would he do? You know, he's all about removing gatekeepers. So, for example, his big thing is if we're bringing in immigrants who've been trained as doctors or nurses in other countries, let's make sure that the qualifications they already achieved in those other countries get accepted here quicker. That is going to take some negotiations, I think, with the provinces. It's usually up to provincial licensing authorities to make those decisions. But that's that's part of his solution basket. And I'm sure he's going to be pressured for more. What what else can you do? Well, what about the funding in terms of giving provinces more resources? Where will he fall? So I think that's going to be really something to, interesting to watch is, is where the conservative leader decides to slot himself in in the healthcare debate. Yeah. Yeah. One gets the impression that this term is this session, at least, is one where Polyev does have to start presenting some some solutions as well as to pointing out the problems. I think everyone is well aware of what the problems are. On the flip side of this, uh, the prime minister, of course, is painting a rosier picture. He says that uh, he accuses Polyev of simply pointing out the problems without any solutions. He has some big things on his on his plate, though. Healthcare, you mentioned. Uh, there's also, you know, some the usual stuff around consultancies and so on. There's some lingering issues that he'll have to face. What does uh, Justin Trudeau have to do to try to find some momentum this this session? Well, I mean, the, the, the thing for the government right now, the cost of living and inflation is, is pretty much the number one problem for most Canadians. That's when any pollster says, what's the top issue right now? It's cost of living and inflation. Unfortunately, there's really not much the federal government can do on its own to reduce inflation and deal with the cost of living. And to the extent that a Canadian authority can do something, it's the Bank of Canada. And the Bank of Canada has been doing things. It's been raising interest rates. This week, it raised interest rates for the eighth consecutive time. That's a record. Again, that's something Polyev criticized the Trudeau government for, saying, look, under you know just inflation, that's his favorite that's little his line, yeah. That's his line. One thing I think we're going to keep an eye on is the Trudeau minority government is being sustained, of course, by the agreement that Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh made uh, around things uh, at Jagmeet Singh wants things uh, progress on uh, on universal dental care. We had some progress, but not complete progress on that last year on universal pharmacare on better support for housing across the country. So there's going to be a budget in a you know month or two. And Singh and the NDP are going to be pressuring Trudeau to, you know, meet some some performance targets on the things new Democrats want. And so long as Trudeau sees it in his interest, I suppose, to sustain that particular arrangement, in other words, and to sustain his government, you know, I'd look to what Jagmeet Singh is talking about to get hints about what Trudeau might be doing. That will be, I think, key. And then separately, yes, healthcare and where the Trudeau government goes on healthcare. The the thinking right now is Trudeau's hinted at doing one-off deals with different provinces. And it, the the premiers I've talked to, I, I talked to Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston just last week, for example. You know, they they don't want the divide and conquer approach. They were they want to stay unified, you know, and and get one big deal for that that applies across the country. Uh, David, it is the one-year anniversary of the first weekend of the Freedom Convoy, so-called Freedom Convoy, arriving in Ottawa. You did something on that today. What is the mood like in Ottawa? How are we viewing this anniversary? You know, the, the scab is still there, if you will, certainly for the city of Ottawa and the people and the, the municipal politicians here. It caused a lot of changes within the, the city the last, the, in terms of how it's responding. And the new the administration and the new chief all vowing never again for that kind of thing. So that's one thing to think about. That street right in front of Parliament Hill, you know this, Ben, you were t- mm-hmm. in Ottawa for a while. That's Wellington Street. That has been closed for security reasons ever since the Freedom Convoy rolled in a year ago. It has never reopened. 
The city council uh, this week, uh, many members of city council are pushing for a return to normal. And they say, hey, the city is for the residents who live here. They'd like to see traffic back on that street. It's an important east-west thoroughfare through the downtown. I'll tell you, on any given day, you might see a couple of guys with protest flags, or you might see a half a dozen if the weather's good. There's been a bit of a presence of that protest here ever since. Now, depending on who you talk to, the protest was the absolute bottom of of our politics, a dangerous kind of politics. But there's another viewpoint, too. And I was talking to some some of these protesters who are here in town. They say it gave a lot of frustrated Canadians some hope that they had a chance to vent at what they saw was politicians and leaders that were out of touch. Yeah, all of which is say a year later, the impetus that spawned the convoy, I think, is still very much part of our politics. To the negative side, I think it did give some people in this country permission, I guess. I don't know what other word you'd use to yell and scream at journalists, at politicians and be absolutely rude. And in some case, you know, threat, threaten violence towards politicians. We've seen some arrests since. But as they say, on the other hand, there are people who just felt uh, disconnected from our political institutions. And that's as much of a challenge for any member of our federal political class. And it's one I think that people are still struggling with. It yeah, feels like it feels like the whole next session, in some senses, is a microcosm of that. It, it's the yeah, sort of this well, idea of, of broken, bad government versus everything's okay, and you don't want to rely on someone who stokes anger. It feels like that's what's going to play out in Parliament in the next uh, next months. And I think Trudeau's going to bring this up more than Polyev. Polyev, yeah. I mean, to go back to those speeches that each man gave to their own caucus today. Polyev didn't really talk about that whole convoy movement or that frustration, you know, or didn't really allude to it. But Trudeau did. Trudeau right. had someone, I'm paraphrasing here, but Trudeau said, you know, there was a time when we honked for healthcare workers, when we honked in support of healthcare workers. And then there were some that started honking at healthcare workers. And that, that was part of a section in which he was criticizing Polyev for feeding disinformation and misinformation and so on. So I, I think you will see the liberals, they, they, they do look at the polls, and though they say, you know, the polls do say the vast majority of Canadians disagreed with uh, the Freedom Convoy and the blockades at borders, uh, the, the method, but 40% of Canadians said they felt sympathy for those things that motivated the anger and frustration. So you have to be a little careful. Younger people tend to approve more of that method. Younger people like emphatic protests. Uh, and that goes for everything from Black Lives Matter to pushing over statues of John A. McDonald to a Freedom Convoy protest. Younger people seem to be more in agreement with, as they say, uh, this is Daryl Bricker, our pollster yeah. from Insos, who talks about emphatic protests. Yeah. Older people, older Canadians, not so much. No, 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 no. That's not the way you do politics. Politics is done at the ballot box. And we don't want to see people tearing down statues or tearing down or threatening our, our politicians or parliament buildings. And of course, Ben, as you know, yeah. older people tend to vote relative to younger people. And so politicians tend to be more responsive to uh, older voters, older being, you know, 35, 40 and up. Go big or go home seems to be the uh, the operative word there when, for protests in the uh, in the social media age. Yeah. Right. Uh, David Aiken, as always, thank you so much. Good luck with the upcoming session. Thanks, Ben. And uh, great to chat as always. I took an extra shot of insulin in preparation for this cake today. If I don't have some cake soon, I might die. Why don't you just have an apple? Why don't you mind your business? <laughs> uh, there's Stanley from The Office and Oscar suggesting he should have an apple. Um, yeah, I mean, sweets, 
sweets and treats at the office, right? It's part of the office environment. I went and worked in an office for a while um, in a big office setting just as the pandemic was hitting. And I was stunned. I mean, I worked most of my life in newsrooms and every once in a while there was the odd box of Timbits. But working in an office, uh, a normal office full of people, we were there was all kinds of food. There was always food around. There were always cookies and cakes and donuts and always, always, always. And of course, what happens is you end up eating them, right? I mean, you say, today's the day I'm not going to eat any Timbits. And invariably, you kind of, you know, you'll peek into the box to see how many are left. There's always someone in the office who eats a lot of them. I could never figure out who that was in any office for that matter. Uh, but you'll always sneak your head in and have a few, right? You can, well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? The thing is that now that I'm, I work sort of uh, very much on my own most of the time, I never eat donuts, ever. I mean, you know, now and then, but really rarely. I probably had more donuts in the two year, two and a half years I was in that office environment than I had in the 20 years before and the two years after. That's how many, that's how much sweets, that's how many sweets are around. So I was interested to see a quote this week that turned into a bit of a, you know, a bit of a political correctness storm. Um, the chair of the UK Food Standards Agency, that's kind of the head food group, food agency uh, in the government in Britain, uh, said, you know, this is no laughing matter. And she's an Oxford professor of diet and population. Her name is Susan Jeb. And she likened the impact of colleagues bringing cakes and like, like things to work to secondhand smoke. She told the Times of London, if nobody brought in cakes into the office, I would not eat cakes in the day. But because people do bring in cakes, I eat them. She said, with smoking after a very long time, we've got to a place where we understand that individuals have to make some effort, but that we can make their efforts more successful by having a supportive environment. But we still don't feel that way about food. Now, at first glance, and certainly the Daily Mail, which is notorious for these sorts of articles, was making full fun of this, saying it was outrageous. And the first, when you look at it, you think, that's outrageous. Why would you stop people from bringing sweets into work, like for someone's birthday? Or why would you stop people from bringing in cookies? I mean, why would you do that? Why would you take all the fun out of the office, right? And then I got to thinking about it and thought, wait a second, you know, things have changed. You used to be able to smoke in the office, right, a million years ago. I remember going to visit... Uh, my mom at work, and you could smoke in the office. By the time I started working in the late 80s, you couldn't. But you could smoke in, in stores when I was young. I used to work in like, you know, regular retail outlets, and people could smoke at the video store, for instance. Um, and, you know, booze used to be relatively prevalent in the office environment. It is still a little bit, but, you know, you don't see anybody bringing out the drinks card on a Friday afternoon anymore in the office, right? That just does not happen. Things change. Things evolve. So it got me thinking that this actually isn't quite as um, silly as it may sound at first glance. Maybe she has a point here, just perhaps comparing it to secondhand smoke was, you know, maybe a bit of a stretch. But obesity is a huge problem. We know that. Um, so why not? In other words, and you'll forgive the pun, maybe we should give this idea it's just desserts. Uh, joining me now to help me do that is Leah uh, Menacher. She is an associate professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo and has a PhD in public health. Leah, thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, we often uh, see headlines that are like, wow, that's 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 an interesting take on things. And it gets you thinking. It gets you thinking about what was said. So I suppose we could just start with what was said, which is essentially, uh, they call her the food czar, which is a strange way of putting it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the prof a professor in Professor Susan Jeb has essentially compared bringing sweets to work, you know, cake, cake cupcakes, donuts, whatever, to secondhand smoke. And it's a pretty provocative statement. I mean, it's definitely provocative. Thinking about it, like 
Is it ridiculous? Would I rather have someone sitting beside me eating a piece of chocolate cake or smoking a cigarette? That's an easy one. And, yeah. you know, yeah. breathing in the secondhand smoke. And I think the, op- the answer for me is pretty clear. I would rather be, you know, watching them eat cake than inhaling their secondhand smoke. Um, so in, in terms of that, I think it's a little bit of an, an overstatement of an analogy, but I think it provides a really interesting opportunity for us to think about how they might be similar. And so from my work, I mean, asking, is there something reasonable about this analogy? Bringing cake to the office is not the same as someone smoking in the office, but it's also not the same as someone, you know, brushing their hair in the office, which really has no impact on your life. And even if it did cause you to brush your hair a little more, that's not going to harm your health. Eating cake or, you know, social events, someone's birthday, someone's retiring. I mean, those kinds of things happen frequently. And dietary risks is one of the the leading causes of global morbidity and mortality and the in in Canada and obviously globally and our food environment does impact our eating and those little decisions we make every day over time add up to determine our health in the long run yeah i mean what my take on it was she was trying to draw that parallel between making the environment more conducive to healthy habits right it wasn't sort of uh, you know, the nanny state kind of idea it was really like, listen, uh, there was a time where it was okay to smoke in pubs. We went to pubs anyway, because we wanted to go there. And then we decided, you know what, don't let people smoke in pubs, it'll be healthier for everyone, people will smoke less too. And I sort of felt this is what she was saying here, listen, she's not gonna, there's not gonna be the cake police at offices. She was simply saying, when it comes to your work environment, you should be taking this stuff into consideration. Is it okay to always bring donuts to work, right? Right. And I mean, this is something employers probably want their employees to be healthy, right? They don't want to have to pay all the health insurance premiums and like all of that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, there's there's groups in society that we think should be supporting our health. So like schools as an institution are another great example. Should teachers be giving candies to kids for getting the right answer? Like, it's not great for their, I mean, if you ask a dentist, they'd probably say no, don't do yeah. that. Yeah, dentists um, used to do that. I remember years and years and years ago, the dentists used well, to get yeah, it. Yeah, and that's, you know? changed, that's changed as well, right? And I mean, remember back when when pharmacies used to sell tobacco yep. and then we kind of as a society thought, you know what, well, is it okay that healthcare providers are selling something that we know kills half of the people who regularly use it? And we thought, no, not so good. So I wonder too, if there's not just with employment and, and in offices, but like kind of all over the place, we take a look at what's actually causing the greatest amount of illness and disease in our country and say, maybe we do need to start, you know, creating context or environments where the default choice is the healthy choice to support everyone's long-term health. Not to say people can't eat chocolate cake or chips or whatever, but just to say that that's not the default, that if you that's something you want to do, you have to try a little harder to do that. Yeah, I was struck. I mean, I haven't spent a lot. I spent a lot of time in newsrooms and there's occasionally food, but not not that often. And then I had a office position for a while. I was astounded by how much food turned up in that office, how much, you know, always tempting and always sugary, generally <laughs> lots of donuts. It's an interesting social thing, though, because it's sort of a way. I mean, it's there's a lot of bonuses to it. It's that communal thing, the breaking bread, the socializing. You know, it's a it's a, it's like a, a gift from one to the rest. I, I wonder how you do that because I'm sure celery sticks wouldn't wouldn't cut it. I wonder how you how you figure out how to maintain that without, as 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 um, the professor in the UK was pointing out, without making it unhealthy. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have been thinking about this. And I think one option, and, and maybe it's not a great option in the dead of winter in Canada, here we are in January, but thinking about like workplaces often will have like, we can go for a walk at work if you're in a, a building that's supportive of walking around, or we can do other things to fill that time. Because I agree, food, and I think this is sometimes where nutrition messages fail, is that they treat food as nutrients only. And forget that food is not just about nutrients. It's about the social aspect. It's about our traditions, our culture, our celebrations and enjoyment. And so it's not just people don't just eat food because they they need to get the right amount of protein and calcium and iron and all of these things. It's because it's part of who we are and how we express ourselves as well and our connection to each other. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's never going to go away. It's just a matter of being aware of it. And again, providing more opportunities than not where we where we can make easy decisions to be healthy. Yeah, what's interesting about this is is as much as the headline was sort of taken to try to make it seem like it was ridiculous. Uh clearly the you know the um the woman who put it forth is 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 a smart woman and she had a she had a point here and I, and I think it's an interesting it is it is a nice jump off for a conversation about reconsidering. I was thinking earlier that way back when, like it was okay to bring alcohol to the office at the end of the week, you know, and you know, we don't do that anymore. You know, things change. And yeah. when they're first proposed, you think, why would you take that away? You know, killjoys. And then you start to reconsider and think, well, maybe maybe we should be thinking differently about the food we bring into work. Yeah. I mean, I think that's totally true. I think we do are we do have these cultural shifts. And I think, and this is very true of food, and food has been compared many times to tobacco. And and I would say the food industry has been compared many times to tobacco. So and there are again like analogies that work and sometimes work better than some work better than others but i mean like the selling of junk food in pharmacies right that's the thing that seems a little bit when you think about it it seems like yeah why why are pharmacists selling selling sugary drinks and there's a pharmacist out in Bedeck, Nova Scotia who said a few years ago you know i'm a healthcare professional and i counsel i do nutrition counseling with people who have diabetes all the time and i tell them not to drink pop and then they walk by the coke cooler on the way out of my store and he decided to just ban all sugary beverages from his pharmacy as kind of a standalone message to say you know like no i don't accept this anymore so i think there's things like that that happen in society that can just shift enough of our understanding of of who we are and how we behave as a as a population that can cause some some of those more health promoting policies to emerge and whether they're kind of Policies like we're not going to allow pharmacists to do this anymore, for example, or we're going to stop marketing unhealthy foods and beverages to kids, or they're just kind of like small p policies where it's not, it's no longer our workplace culture to bring in cake every Thursday or whatever. It's maybe, maybe we do figure out that celery sticks are okay for some of the time. Leah, you're also pointing out that within an office environment, sometimes the problem is that we feel pressure to not say no to that donut, right? But but that sort of is where it begins. We should feel comfortable, at least if something comes out of this conversation that this uh, that has been provoked by this, is that ability to not feel guilty, but saying, you know, I think I'm going to pass on the donut. Yeah, I mean, that's an important thing. And I think we're it feels like we as a society are so much more aware of peer pressure now. And we're so conscious of teaching our kids about peer pressure. Just say no, you know, if you're at a party, you can blame mom and tell them, you know, you're whatever, mom's picking you up or whatever. And I think it's the same at workplaces. And we don't we don't necessarily see ourselves as being as peer pressuring our colleagues or as being peer pressured. Um, but I think if we normalize it that, you know, yeah, you're allowed to say no, you're allowed to pass, especially if it happens regularly. 
Um, and that's okay. And it doesn't mean that you don't, you know, care about the person who's celebrating something. It just means that you're choosing not to eat that thing in that moment. I always wonder, because usually within an office environment, there are a few people who are sort of the ringleaders when it comes to bringing stuff in. It's I think it's just the way they the way they share, right? The way they share mm-hmm. a part of themselves with their colleagues, you know, is to bring in stuff they baked or stuff they bought. I wonder if there's a way to have a conversation with them too, where you're like, listen, it's lovely that you do this, but you maybe you should do a little bit less of it. Because I can only imagine that would get people's backs up. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends, right? If you love through food and through feeding people, then uh, I can imagine that might be challenging. I guess, though, I think for me, if I were to bring stuff in and a colleague and regularly do so, and a colleague said, you know, I'm trying to just watch what I eat for my own health. It's nothing about you. You know, if you can, if you're able to have that kind of conversation and make it about what you need and you want in this situation, I think that's probably more likely to be well-received than not by someone. I guess part of the issue here too, and it's probably generational, is that you do have a generation such as mine. I mean, I'm in my early 50s that grew up in office environments that were more permissive than they are today. So I always feel like the knee-jerk reaction from my generation about sort of scent bans and so on is always a bit like, what? And then you realize afterwards that it's actually, the collective good is good. Yeah, I know. It's, you know, it's really funny. And I think when people feel like their freedom is being restricted, everyone, like we all do this, right? You're kind of, your back gets up and you feel a little bit like, hey, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. (laughs) Um, And this is like from kids all the way up to adults, right? So I think the way I try to think about it and, and talk about it is that it's not that we're saying, no, you can't. It's not that we're trying to restrict people. It's more that we're trying to provide opportunities and contexts where people can be healthy and that it's the logical choice for them and the logical outcome is that their health will be improved by this because we all also care about our health, right? So yeah, I think it's it's about creating environments where it's easier to be healthy for us. Yeah, I felt the same way about the alcohol and health guidelines that came out a few weeks ago. People were incensed by this two drink a limit per week. And I said, it's not, there's no edict, you know, there's no policing of this. It's just, it's a suggestion for you. So you have information when you choose to drink or not drink. What you do is up to you, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's the same thing with, again, like not to make this all about tobacco, but it's, it feels a little bit similar. Like if someone wants to smoke, you know, that's their choice. I don't think that the tobacco industry should be allowed to market their products to kids, for example. Similarly, if someone wants to eat, you know, sugary breakfast cereal, that's fine. I just don't want it to be that when I go grocery shopping, my kids ask me because there's cartoons on all of the boxes and they're all at their eye levels and, you know, like those kinds of things. So I think it's about creating a bit more of an even playing field where, again, those healthier choices are not kind of at the very bottom of the heap and the secret choices and the hard choices to make. They're just easier and sort of more accessible for everyone. Yeah. And I gather that is exactly, even though uh, the analogy was secondhand smoke, I, I gather that's exactly what Professor Jeb was trying to say in that comment. I think so. I think so. And I think there's value to exploring it as we are right now, like thinking about, yeah, what does that mean? How does that change how I think about food? Because, I mean, all of the research does show that you know, our eating is embedded in context, whether those are our family preferences, our culture, our offices, our other organizations in which we participate, but even things like restaurant policies, like when you're asked, you know, at a fast food outlet, do you want fries with that? That primes you to make a certain choice rather than, hey, do you want apple slices with that? And, you know, like if just imagine if that was different. And of course, like, 
It doesn't have quite the more, same ring to it, but yes. It doesn't, not at all. But if things were a little different, people would maybe start making a little bit of healthier choices because we know that diet quality in Canada is quite poor, actually. And that's why, you know, there's so much sort of disease and death associated with poor diet quality in this country and globally. Well, Leah, thank you so much for uh, for chatting about this. It was an interesting, I was intrigued by the headline and intrigued to see what other people thought about it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's talk about anxiety dreams this half hour. You know, those dreams you have, I think we all have a different version of them. Uh, Shane Hewitt, the host of The Shift, was saying last night that his is, because he did a lot of DJing back in the early 90s in clubs and so on, his was that he's DJing and he can't, he only has four records. He has nothing else to play and the audience, he knows they're going to get angry at some point. And another one where he's just able to play one song over and over again with some, with similar results. Um, the one I have often is is being late for something. Uh, generally, the one I usually have for some weird reason involves school. I can't tell if it's high school or university. Who knows? It looks like my primary school. I'm running through the hallways. I have an exam. It's a course I've never studied for. I know nothing about the subject. I just know that I have this exam and that I'm late for it. You can usually hear a clock ticking behind you. It's not fun, right? It's not fun. The fun part is waking up and realizing it's just a dream and that you finished, you know, you haven't been in school in decades. Um, but a lot of us have similar ones. Like I've read of many other people. I was watching some uh, different stories on this today, and there was an anchor somewhere in the U.S. telling the same story. That's his anxiety dream. His other one is um, that he misses his deadlines or that he's he's late for a shift, either anchoring or producing or hosting like this, and can't access his office. Like he can't get into where he has to do his work from. So, and he's watching the, the clock tick by. Anxiety dreams. We all have them. <laughs> we all have them. Uh, here's a, a, a funnier take on it. Amy Poehler, of course, the, the comedian, uh, came back to host Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live many years ago and spoke about her stress of having to do it. Here she is. Ah, oh, you know, when I used to work here, it was the craziest thing, but I would always have these stress dreams that I was going to be late for the show. And I'd hoped those days were behind me, but last night, right on schedule, I had one of those dreams. Fred, I'm late for work. Oh, I'm not Fred. I'm a security guard, and everyone is mad at you. Oh my god. Oh no. Nassim, why are you in my Caitlyn costume? Guess what? I'm Caitlyn now. What? Make sure you remember the complicated dance routine. Remember, it goes like this: kickball change, kickball change, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly. Land in your position, knife catch, knife catch. Okay? No, got it? No, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Right? Just all these things coming at you, and you're just scrambling. So why do we have those dreams? Why are they so similar? I mean, so much of what we think about is we think of as being unique, but it, our anxiety dreams tend to follow similar patterns. Um, and what is your brain telling you? How do you defeat it? Uh, joining me now is Nafisa Ismail. She's a professor at the School of Psychology at the University of Ottawa and holder of the university chair there in stress and mental health. She knows this topic well. Uh, Nafisa, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. So uh, you know, I'll, I'll explain how this all started. So I have these anxiety dreams, and they're strange because they often involve university, which happened for me many, many decades ago at this point. I've, I'm late for an exam for a course I've never taken. I've done none of the coursework. And I'm running around what looks like a combination of sort of my university and my grade school, trying to find a classroom. There's a clock ticking, and I'm never going to find it. And then I wake up. 
So, and I realized that a lot of people have very similar anxiety dreams. And I was really curious as to why that, what is going on in your brain? Why are we having these weird flashbacks to things that happened ages ago? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, when it comes to anxiety dreams, it is somewhat connected to what's happening to us currently, although the dreams could be linked to things in the past. So if we are in periods where we are experiencing particularly high levels of stress, and these could be due to any factor of stress, you know, but if we are experiencing some level of stress that's higher than normal, during the night is where our brain will process again everything that we were exposed to during the day. It will consolidate everything that has happened to us during the day. And during that consolidation process, it's going to put pieces together. And as an individual that is sleeping, we're not aware of all the pieces, you know, but we sort of wake up remembering some of these pieces. And as we put them together, it gives us a bit of a story. And sometimes it's linked actually to a story that happened in the past. Interesting. So the, so the brain never, the brain's not asleep and it's making its own little movies for you. Absolutely. At night, while we feel like we're resting, our brain is actually working very hard. But I, what I was surprised by was how similar people's anxiety dreams are. I mean, a lot of people, I've, I was looking into this, a lot of people have that same college dream about, about an exam they haven't studied for, not able to find the classroom. It seems to be a really common one. I wonder why that would be that we often people have similar anxiety dreams, you know, not being being naked in front of a bunch of people, not being able to move, not being able to talk. It seems like there's some real consistent ones in there. Absolutely. There are some very consistent anxiety dreams. So being late in a class in at a meeting, those are recurrent ones that we're going to see a lot of people have. Another common one is this feeling of falling off a cliff is also nice. one that I haven't had that have, one. <laughs> yeah, good. that people yeah. have actually quite commonly. It, in some ways, all these anxiety dreams and they're not that different from one individual to another. They are somewhat linked to survival and to reaching a goal. So right. another common one too is, is also not being able to complete a task in a timely manner. Right. So you have a deadline, you have something that you need to finish and submit and make it on time, but you're trying really hard and you're not making it. Oh, so, I'm getting stressed yeah, just listening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so there is this common... Uh, anxiety dreams that we tend to experience as individuals, and they're not there all the time, they tend to come and go. And they come particularly during periods where we are experiencing high levels of stress during the day. I, I was reading too, that you were mentioning that part of it is that we're not sleeping well, when you're anxious, you don't sleep well, and that exacerbates it, you tend to remember more about your stresses when you're not sleeping well. Absolutely. So when we are stressed, actually, we have a hard time falling asleep. And when we do manage to fall asleep, we'll see that it will be quite a disrupted sleep where we will wake up at several time points throughout the night, it will take longer to fall asleep. And the quality of our sleep is not the same, it tends to be a bit of a lighter sleep. And this is how we tend to um remember some of the dreams that we're having because the reality is that we dream 
all the time, every night. But we don't remember these dreams all the time. So we remember them only when our sleep is not as deep as it could be or should be for a fully restful night. When you're having those dreams, are they cathartic? Are they good for you or are they bad for you? I've always tried to figure, I mean, there's a certain relief when you wake up and realize that none of it was true. There was no exam. There was no course. You're fine. Uh, but are are they good for you? Are, they, are you processing that way or are they, or are they a sign that you should be looking out for yourself? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a relief waking up and realizing it was just a dream and it Indeed. has nothing to do with reality. But the issue remains that the sleep was not a restful sleep that night. And so then the next morning we are tired. We are, we are still stressed by whatever stress factors we are experiencing. And that's a problem because it can become a vicious cycle. And once it does, it can impact mental health. So we want to be aware of these situations when they are occurring. And we want to try to stop them and not be so recurrent. Yeah, so you're trying to break that cycle, right? We'll talk about that actually just in, in a second. We'll talk about some of the solutions to this. Uh, I guess one of the best examples of this is how many people reported having really vivid stress dreams during the height of the pandemic. Yes, we had many of those. Uh, and we know that that's because they were experiencing uh, numerous factors of stress, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, related to COVID, related to all the sanitary measures that were in place, and, and also related to now working from home, having kids doing schooling from home. We know that there were lots of changes, lots of factors we had never been exposed to before that we started experiencing. At the moment, we are also seeing now again an increase in those anxiety dreams. And while they may not be completely related to the pandemic, they seem to this time now be related to more economic worries. So with interest rate hikes, um, with uh, people now being limited in the amount of money that they can borrow, uh, maybe job uncertainty added to that, changes in our lifestyle, uh, all that are factors that are causing more stress at the moment. Yeah, I guess you can never take your day-to-day -day life uh, out of your dreams, right? Nafisa no, Ismail, Nafisa no. Ismail is, is with us this half hour. Uh, Nafisa, I mean, you, you have a busy life. Uh, you must have them too, right? And and, and what, what are they like? Do you have similar ones to the ones you were talking about? Yeah, I used to have one where I felt like I was falling off a cliff. Oh, and, you mentioned that one. Yeah. That was a common one for me. And then, you know, after reading some more, also researching some more, I realized that there are some techniques that we can uh, engage in that do help us sleep better and avoid these anxiety dreams. Right. So what can you do? I mean, I know a lot of this is probably somewhat similar to the advice we get on just sleeping well, period. But what is it that we could do when we're stressed out? Because I think that gets in the way sometimes. You know, if you had a bad night's sleep the night before, the next night becomes even more stressful when it comes to getting a good night's sleep. Absolutely. It's important to establish a bedtime routine. And that's hard, especially now with the increased exposure to social media, to uh, we're always on our computers lately. And since the pandemic, it's become worse. So but we need to take 
a break from it. So especially before we go to bed. So about an hour or so before going to bed, we want to step away from the computer and then start a routine that works for us. And that's going to be different from for each individual. For some, it's helpful to read a book. For others, it may be helpful to do a little bit of meditation, yoga, anything that works for you and that will help you reduce the level of stress that you have experienced during the day and sort of shut down that stress, you know, and say, yes, all this happened. It's stressful. It's bad. But right now it's bedtime and I'm going to relax. For some, it could be taking a nice, long, warm bath, you know, so it really depends from one individual to another. But we each need to find what is that thing that works for us, you know, so it could be trying a number of things. Then sleeping at a regular time, that's also quite important because we can program our brain this way to say, okay, it's getting close to bedtime. I'm going to start relaxing. And it's not just a matter of relaxing, but when we are sleeping, our brain is producing hormones that are very important for a good night's sleep. One of them is melatonin. So when we are getting close to our bedtime, our our typical bedtime, and our brain is ready for it, it will start producing that melatonin that will allow us to then have a good night's sleep, deep sleep, where we will not be constantly woken up by these anxiety dreams. This melatonin will also allow us to then the next day be able to produce serotonin. And serotonin is so important for our mood, for our ability to concentrate, focus. And so all that will help us then perform better the next day, even in in light of all the stressors that we are experiencing. So we really need to put in place all the techniques that will work for us that will allow us to break that vicious cycle and be able to sleep well so that we get out of this constantly stressed state. So I can imagine my routine because I finish work around 10 p.m. Then I get home. Then I catch up on the news, what I missed during the day while I was focusing on the show. And I start to plan to the next day's show. And I and I read the news and that can't be a good thing because you're just stimulating your brain. You have your screen on it. It sounds like a. I imagine I'm doing everything wrong. <laughs> Yes, it's actually uh, not so good. And and we see it also in people who have shift work or individuals that are traveling a lot and that are constantly changing time zones. Our body is conceived to be active during the day and sleep at night. You know, while sometimes we may feel like we work better at night, that we it's quieter, we feel like we can focus better. We're not. We're just compounding tiredness in our body, in our brain. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's not great to be doing that. I'm sorry, Ben. No, no. I, yeah, I know. I know. I know it. Well, uh, Nafisa, thank you so much for your time tonight. That's been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Drop the mandates across the board for every single man, woman, and child across Canada. We've dealt with this for two years. You said two weeks to flatten the curve. We're two years later. 
the Freedom Convoy, of course, rolled into the nation's capital and unleashed really what was a political and social firestorm right across the country. Authorities were confident it would be over quickly. Instead, police were overwhelmed as trucks and other vehicles converged on Wellington Street. And any plans that were in place were pretty much out the window. You remember Trudeau sort of said, this doesn't represent, uh, this is a fringe minority. What followed was blockades, not just in Ottawa, but at border crossings, including the vital Ambassador Bridge in Windsor and another in Coots, Alberta. They weren't the only ones. And in the nation's capital, it really turned into a three-week occupation of the city's downtown, seemingly dug in, not willing to move, and it turned out immovable. Um, so if police tactics weren't ready for what happened 12 short months ago, have things changed since? And how? How do we maintain the right to protest and be able to counter similar blockades in the future. Well, joining me now with more on that is retired Ottawa Police Service Detective Sergeant Greg Brown. He is now an adjunct research professor and contract instructor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University. Thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. Uh, Greg, when you look back at this time last year, it it seems, I mean, it seems almost surreal what happened in those three weeks. Uh, But what do you figure was learnt from that? I mean, this was a tactic that hadn't, I guess, hadn't been seen up close before. Um, Do you think we're better able to counter it now? I think so. I think the lesson learned, Ben, was that um, that passive policing, or as some would characterize it, timid policing, uh, was obviously not very effective. The tool certainly existed at the outset to address the issue uh, very quickly in terms of a police response. And there was significant reluctance in this era of risk aversion throughout policing to to take that kind of action. And I I think if something similar were to happen today, the police response would be immediate and much different. How about as far as the borders are concerned? I know that's, uh, you know, that's multi-jurisdictional and can be a little bit complex, but clearly one of the big issues here was Windsor, was the Ambassador Bridge. Uh, Do you think we, what lessons do you think were learned through that? Because it seemed like the Ambassador Bridge blockade was really the one that got everybody moving. Right. Similar observation with the other two sites uh, that you referenced, the, the Ambassador Bridge in Coots, Alberta. You know, the, the police don't want to look bad. Much of my research uh, has looked at risk aversion or, or the phenomenon of de-policing, and certainly it's pervasive throughout policing today. Um, video imagery is, is prevalent. Uh, police are looked on, um, especially uh, this evening with, with what's happened in Memphis, Um, You know, the public with much more scrutiny and much more skepticism. And so police are very reluctant to deploy physical uh, force to address these kind of issues. You know, it doesn't make for good public relations to see, you know, police officers in riot gear and helmets and long uh, batons wading into groups of citizens and and using force to affect an outcome. And so um, there's been significant economic loss in, in the, the protests that you're referencing, but this goes back um, some years. I mean, you can go back to 2006 in Caledonia with the blockades, right. uh, 2009. Ironically, in, in the city I worked in, Ottawa, uh, we had the Tamil protesters uh, occupy the very same street, Wellington Street, for a protracted amount of time. And then in 2020, of course, we had significant economic disruption across the country with the blockade of the rail lines at uh, Taina Denega in Ontario. Via rail was shut down. um, Commercial rail operations were were shut down for significant amounts of time. So this is a phenomenon that I think is coming up uh, frequently. And and I think police really need to get a handle on how they're going to address these kind of of protests. There's different ways of protesting. When you occupy 
public lands and you inhibit other people's abilities to to move around freely and commercial activities to to take place. That's another issue. Yeah, and the complexities too of trying to maintain, trying to uh, respect the right to be seen and to be heard, right in this country, at the same time as trying to figure out when it crosses the line. I mean, it's it's it is a it is a tough one, and it's evolved. I gather. I mean, it feels like it's evolved a lot since the advent of social media. Like things have changed. You know, I I was at some of those blockades that you were referencing as a reporter. And, you know, you could sort of, it was always the idea that you'd, people would kind of wait them out, right? It was kind of avoid avoid confrontation, wait people out for the most part. It feels like in the social media age, especially for police, things have changed. I mean, everything, everything is is live. And that changes yeah. the way everyone behaves. Absolutely, Ben. That's that's an excellent point. And, and as I said, that was the focus of my research. You know, how has the, the omnipresence of video imagery affected police decision-making at the individual level in terms of frontline policing. And certainly in the Ottawa context, I have good contacts within my former police service in the upper management. And certainly there was a significant timidness in addressing the convoy uh, protests exactly because of the kind of negative video imagery that would come about and potentially public um, scrutiny, public animosity towards the police. And, and so it was, it evolved into sort of a, a wait and see and, and hopefully wait them out type of thing. And, and obviously that didn't unfold. What kind of damage do you think it did reputationally? I mean, that therein lies another challenge for law enforcement is, you know, you're, you're sort of damned if you do, and you're certainly damned if you don't, which is if you go in and there's video of, of sort of brutality, then, then you're criticized for that. If you don't go in and it turns into a blockade, like we saw last year, you're criticized for your inaction. So, I mean, it, it must have done, it must have had a real impact. I mean, we know it had a real impact on the Ottawa Police Service. It had a significant impact on the Ottawa Police. I mean, the, I was out of the country when, when this all unfolded, thankfully, um, because I live um, just outside of Ottawa. But, you know, the residents of Ottawa were very upset with the lack of police response and, you know, the disruption of lives in the downtown core of a major Canadian city. Uh, but on the other hand, police management was wary of this kind of negative imagery, negative publicity. And so I sympathize with with the upper management's situation. They were, they were, as you said, I think they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. So it was a no-win situation for the police. But I, I think clearly in the aftermath, we can all assess that that the way it was handled was was not appropriate. And I think I've been asked on other media outlets you know what would happen if this were to happen again this year and i think you would see an immediate police response yeah i was i was about to ask you the same question <laughs> of course you know we're, we're all predictable aren't we uh i was going to ask you the same question like what would we see differently if it were to happen again i mean things like this never really happen the same way twice but if we were to see something that looked like it was brewing up into that you you think we would see a much quicker intervention then i think if you saw 10 tractor trailers pull up on Wellington Street or Queen Street or Elgin Street in downtown Ottawa, I think you would have a, a large number of officers there within an hour. There would be tow trucks. I think the drivers of those vehicles would be told, if you don't move the vehicle voluntarily, you're going to be arrested for mischief under the criminal code, and we're going to tow your truck off the street immediately. You know, nip it in the bud, so to speak, you know. Um, show, show other people that might be en route with similar intentions that that was going to be what would what would uh, confront them if they parked their vehicle illegally in the downtown core of Ottawa. And yet, you know, you don't want to stop people from protesting, right? I mean, if you look at different capitals around the world, the Londons and the Parises, I mean, they have, or Brussels, to, for, 
to, to point to an even better example, you know, they have pretty active protests. You know, I think of farmers' protests and so on. You don't want to make that go away. So how do you find that balance? I'm glad I don't have to make that decision, Ben. As an academic, yeah. I just I study these things and you know I give some advice to to police services that engage my services as a consultant. But um, you know it is a balancing act, and and quite often the police will try to liaise with with the organizers of these kind of demonstrations or protests and negotiate. You know, okay, we'll let you you know parade down this street you know, disrupt the normal uh, traffic on that street for X amount of time, you know, for 12 hours, we will cooperate, we'll put barricades, we'll shut the street, we'll let you do your thing and have your say in a democratic society. But you can't close the entire downtown of a city for days or weeks with no end in sight. I think that's probably where we've sort of drawn the line, certainly in the Ottawa and Canadian context. Yeah, I would think at least for the time being, uh, for, former Ottawa Police Service Detective Sergeant Greg Brown is with us this half hour. He is now at Carleton University. We're talking about uh, the one-year anniversary of the uh, Freedom Convoy rolling into Ottawa. What has been learned from a policing point of view, how to maintain that balance in a democracy between the right to protest and the right of people to access their cities and be free of protests as well in their own backyards. Uh, when we come back, um, and Greg has already spoken about it, there's been a big there's a big story unfolding in the U.S. tonight. They've released video, uh, the body cam video of on the bodies of the five police officers now charged uh, in the death of a 29-year-old man, a motorist that was pulled over and beaten. Uh, and we'll talk a bit about that because it's uh, it's certainly been a very, very controversial and, 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 and heated uh, topic tonight in the U.S. I believe there was um, a sense of groupthink um, in, in the mentality of, of what was happening. And um, it's just uh, very unfortunate that nobody stepped forward to say enough. That is Memphis's police chief, Sarah Lynn Davis, talking about the death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols three days after he was beaten by five police officers during a traffic stop in that uh, Tennessee city earlier this month. Today, body cam video showing the officers uh, beating Nichols was released. There have been appeals for calm from the victim's family, politicians, and others right across the country and beyond. Police chiefs here have been weighing in in Canada. Uh, the victim was African-American, the, the five now former officers, all of whom face multiple criminal charges, including second-duty murder, are also African-American. Um, I'm speaking tonight with Greg Brown, who is a Ottawa Police Service Detective Sergeant, a former Ottawa Police Service Detective Sergeant, and now adjunct research professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University. Uh, Greg, I'm sure you, I know you're in the U.S. tonight. I'm sure you've seen a lot of these videos. I mean, it feels like, I remember Rodney King way back when. It feels like, again, here we are um, with one of those situations where it's sort of hard to explain the inexplicable. Exactly, Ben. Um... The parallels are are unmistakable, and uh, I just watched them earlier this evening. The there's a bunch of videos available now. There's a surveillance CCTV video. I believe that's actually owned by the Memphis Police, right from the street corner where the second confrontation takes place, and then some body worn video from the individual officers. Very disturbing, to say the least. So, be interesting to see how this unfolds uh, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, unlike. Um... LA back in the early 90s, it seems like in this case, at least the Memphis Police Department were very quick to act. Uh, how much of a difference do you think that will make seeing how it seems these five officers, I mean, they haven't been found guilty of anything yet, but they've been quickly reprimanded for what happened? Right. I'm, I'm hopeful that it will um, 
the quick action by the district attorney and, and the police uh, department in addressing the officer's misconduct. Hopefully that'll, that'll keep the violent protests uh, to a minimum. Uh, we don't want to exacerbate this egregious conduct by the police with, you know, deaths and looting and rioting and all kinds of mayhem on the streets. So hopefully the protests will be peaceful. There certainly is a justification for people to voice their concern and express their outrage over the, the occurrence, but hopefully that's done in a peaceful way. It's hard to overstate just how much damage this does to the reputation of policing amongst amongst those who are already in a position to be suspicious of it. Well, it's demoralizing to, to serving officers. I've heard from many of my colleagues that are retired and, and serving that, you know, that this kind of behavior is criminal. I mean, it's it's not surprising the officers were charged with second degree murder. This is straight out criminal behavior. It has nothing to do with any form of policing that anybody's familiar with. And it, it comes back to issues that I've been talking about for many years. If we have people in the audience that are uh, executives with police services across the country. I've been talking about this when I give presentations to the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police or the Canadian Association of Police Governance talking about making sure that we hire the right people, spending more resources uh, to ensure that we're hiring the right people to be police officers and then following up with those right people with extensive training. There's a massive deficiency in training. Um, these kind of occurrences happen because the wrong officer, the wrong people were hired to be officers and they weren't trained properly. Um, to be a, Not everybody can be a police officer, Ben. I, I say that to students all the time that are interested in going into policing. You have to be able to have patience. You have to be able to keep your composure in the face of things that most normal people can't keep their composure. People spitting in your face, punching you, kicking you, you know, making you run after them. And what I see on the video is officers that were just completely out of control. Their use of force was motivated by anger as opposed to a desire to take the person into custody with the least amount of force that's required um, to, to affect that purpose. Yeah. And I think back to the Rodney King one, I think that was what was so terrifying about it. If you're not, if you don't know, if you're not in the police, is that you see this sort of, you know, they are an authority in our society that has the the right to use force. And here they are using it indiscriminately against what appears to be, in this case, you know, a helpless victim begging for his life. Right. That, that was certainly what captured my attention watching the videos. I mean, when you see a group of, of large individuals restraining someone and then one of the officers you know kicking a defenseless person and then there's another officer that comes in i by my count you know three very heavy punches while other officers are holding him up and holding his arms essentially behind his back i mean the person is completely defenseless there's no way any officer could justify that use of force that's just out and out criminality it has nothing to do with police use of force I would imagine that after something like this happens, that right across this country, uh, you know, senior police officers will be sitting down with the rank and file to, to talk about this. I really hope so, Ben, because, uh, you know, I, as I said, I've been talking to chiefs and, and political leaders in policing across Canada and, and in the United States. And what I always tell them is either spend more money on training or wait for one of these incidents to happen, unfortunately, in your jurisdiction, and then watch the mayhem that happens, watch the multi-million dollar lawsuits that happen, not to mention the poor citizen that's victimized. And so what we have to do in training, I think, Ben, is that's very important is we have to push officers into these very, you know, in simulated environments that are 
as realistic as possible, push someone to their limits in terms of stress and adrenaline and, you know, see how they're going to respond because some people just don't respond appropriately. And clearly these officers did not respond appropriately to that kind of situation. I know you've looked into this a lot. The body cams were on. Um, clearly they would have known this was being recorded. How do you explain that? Well, I think a phenomenon happens with the body cameras. When I was doing my my research, I did research across Canada and the U.S. with uh, 3,660 officers in 2016 and 2017. It was a huge data set. And some of the jurisdictions I was at had introduced body cams. And uh, particularly, I think, uh, Rochester, New York, when I was there doing research, I was speaking with the officers and they'd had a pilot project. And the officers that had the cameras for some amount of time essentially forgot that they have the cameras. They just become a normal sort of part of their everyday environment. And then of course, in a highly stressful situation, you're focused on many other things other than the fact that a body camera. So the only explanation I have, uh, my discipline isn't, isn't psychology, but I think it's a sort of a common sense conclusion is that the officers were just caught up in the moment and they completely forgot that the cameras were rolling and those cameras are ultimately gonna put those officers in prison for a very long time. Well, Greg Brown, I certainly hope there's uh, there's there's some modicum of peace. I know there's a lot of anger in the U.S. tonight. I hope there's some peace as well. Uh, thank you so much for your insight on this. Uh, fascinating. My pleasure, Ben. Anytime. Take care.